9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Welcome back to Deep State Radio. This is Rosa Brooks. I am standing in once again as host for David Rothkopf, our fearless leader. Uh, David is at a secret Deep State Summit in an undisclosed location, and we're going to have to proceed without him for one more episode. He will be back next week, we, we, we hope. Um, but nonetheless, even though David is not here, I do have with me in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK, uh, Heather Hurlbert, the project director of the New Models of Policy Change Initiative at New America and Ed Luce of the Financial Times, and we are going to plumb the depths today. Uh, uh, as, as, as indeed we always do. Um, so speaking of, of plumbing the, the very deepest depths of depravity, et cetera, uh, one of the things that's been much in the news in the last few days in the United States has been this uh, college admissions bribery uh, scandal in which, as we now know, a variety of extremely rich people concerned that their little offspring would not make it into elite universities, uh, decided it would be best to bribe coaches to pretend that they were star water polo, tennis, and soccer players, uh, and or bribe various other people to you know, take the SAT or ACT for them. Uh, and they were paying a substantial amount of money uh, to various brokers who assured them that they could get little little Johnny and little Janie into into places like Yale. And I, here's my question to to you. Um, does this have any significance beyond the fact that it tells us something we already know, which is that the American system of higher education is deeply inequitable uh, in all kinds of ways and that Americans are crazy? Does this say anything broader about the fears of class slippage and anxieties about the direction of the global economy and the ability of, of the next generation to make it. Uh, uh, Heather, what do you think? I've been really fascinated um, watching the response, how much there's been along the lines of, well, yes, this is terrible, but there are plenty of perfectly legal ways to get your kid into college that are functionally cheating and the system is completely biased um, in favor of people who are already at the top. Um, and I think I sort of have been reading, you know, not so much the scandal, although it's certainly ridiculous, as the larger response as, as really a warning about what a kind of late days of Rome place we're in, where um, the sort of the ways that the ruling class perpetuates itself are just seen as comprehensively corrupt and it doesn't matter whether you followed the rules or, or didn't follow the rules. And that that just, it seems to me, if we want to take it as one, it's, it's another warning that some things have got badly out of whack, not just in higher ed, but in the society as a whole. Ed, what's your take on this? You're a product of the British higher education system, which, which is itself 
uh, certainly not immune to to accusations of elitism at the at the top universities, but in many other ways operates in a far simpler manner than U.S. higher education. What's your reaction? Yeah, the British the British system. I mean, I think it's sort of inched a little bit more towards the American model in that you know it used to be basically free. Um, and you know now tuition is ch- modest tuition is charged, um, although it's becoming gradually less modest over time. I mean, of course, the 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 branding, the returns to sort of being branded. Um, if you get into Oxford or Cambridge, or some of the other top ones like like um, the London School of Economics, um, you know, or um, Imperial or King's College London, that is is extremely high, and therefore the competition is very fierce. Um, and I'm sure that you know plenty of string pulling um, goes on. I think what's um, what's really striking about um, this latest scandal, Operation um, Vasty Blues, um, is um, well, f- first of all that this is clearly a tip of the iceberg. You know there were 200 FBI agents um, involved in this. 33 parents have been arrested, but this guy, one of the sort of ringleaders, this guy Singer, who based in LA. Yeah, you know, had um, a Rolodex of thousands of parents, and it's pretty clear from the hints um, and the reporting of the FBI case that there are going to be a lot more indictments. Um, uh, so, to some extent, I'm surprised that you know this this case comes um, so late. You know, because clearly, when something is extremely valuable and getting more valuable all the time, and there are limited, um, there's a limited supply of that extremely valuable thing. Um, it tends to produce crime. Um, you know, it tends to it tends to produce people who will who will break the law in order to get it. Um, that's just uh, unfortunately both the laws of economics and the nature of humanity. Um, you think you think this is, is like a weird new variant of the of the resource curse? We have a capturable <laughs> natural resource, <laughs> and so it is getting yes. captured. Yeah, it, it, it probably is. I mean, there's. You know, I bet you, you know, if you were, you could do a test. I don't know. I'm sure the numbers are available. You know, how many Chinese apply to Ivy Leagues, um, you know, and, and think of the supply of Chinese. It's been just steadily rising yeah. in spite of Trump and student visa. It's just been steadily rising. And then, of course, the sort of attempt to globalize the franchise by having, you know, campuses licensed in all all kinds of places like, you know, Dubai. Um it is part of the same phenomenon. I would I would agree with Heather that the most fascinating part of this, though, is that it has forced us to think about well, what's the line between what's legal and what's illegal? Because to a lot of people, it's pretty blurry, you know. So it's totally legal to um, donate millions of dollars to the university your child is applying to, as Charles Kushner did shortly before Jared Kushner was accepted. Um, to Harvard, and I'm sure if we could get the data, um, we'd find that Fred Trump was pretty friendly with Fordham and then UPenn before Donald um, was accepted. Um, and, uh, it, you know, it, re- it remains to be seen what his grades were and what his transcripts will tell us about his performance at that rich kids military academy that he was sent to as a teenager before he went to, to college. Because, uh, as you know, and as Michael Cohen um Reinforced in his testimony to Congress the other day, he he met, he locked he ensured that those records were locked up and remain locked up. Um, so this isn't new, but it is getting worse. 
And uh, I think the larger debate about what's legal is the more important debate. And I think that that in turn inevitably leads to the larger question of uh, what happens to meritocracy in a grossly unequal uh, economy. And um, the answer, you know, doesn't require a degree. It doesn't require even, you know, a high, high school completion certificate. It is plain, obvious, in full view to all of us. You know, my takeaway a little bit in addition to everything that you and Heather have just said and Heather's decline of the Roman Empire point is that it also just bespeaks this incredible degree of, of fear uh, because you look at the parents who were paying these absurd fees to get their kids into fancy colleges and these are already people who are in the 1%. Uh, to start with, you know, that they're extremely successful, high priced corporate lawyers, Wall Street people, uh, movie stars, etc. Their kids are going to be fine. Their kids don't need to go to college. Their kids are going to have trust funds. Uh, there's no universe in which their kids' life, success, or happiness depends on whether they go to Yale or Georgetown or, or USC or wherever it might be. And yet, and yet these parents are convinced that this is some kind of talismanic protection against future economic catastrophe. And it did, it did make me think, you know, is that, is that symptomatic? Is this just standard order corruption? Uh, um, or, or is this something more? Is this just such a profound anxiety about the future, about opportunities, about the likelihood that any given individual, no matter what their initial advantages, can kind of slip from upper class to lower class in, in a millisecond, and that you have to sort of have constant vigilance. Uh, and I, maybe I'm just reading too much into it. Um, no, I don't think you are reading too much into it at all, actually. I, I approach this both from the sort of point of view of a fascinated observer, but also from the point of view um, as the parent of an eighth grader with a disability. Um, as <laughs> no, Rosa, God, God I, I know all. you. Yes. But um, I, your description there, you know, I uh, we went through the interesting high school selection process this year, which led me to spend a night of my life that I will never get back at the info session for one of the extremely competitive um, entrance by examination math and science programs uh, in Montgomery County, Maryland, where I live. And that was an auditorium of 500 of the most terrified adults I can think of anywhere, I mean, outside of a Trump rally, really. But these are people who mm, focused mm -hmm. their anxiety. Like if their kid, if their kid doesn't get into the magnet program, their kid will not be a success in life. And I don't, I don't pretend to know what that's about, but it's, you know, I read twice a week the statistics about, you know, unfortunately, the class origins of the parent determine the child's future much more than which tier of university they go to. I read that twice a week, and yet we are just marinated in this culture of what an enormous difference it makes. And that, I think, actually, your your comparison of you've never been around a group of people as frightened, except for Trump supporters, is is quite telling uh, that that the link, you know, you used to say, well, what's the linkage between the horrific uh, events in New Zealand and the American college admissions scandal? You know, I think the common thread is groups that uh, feel so terrified 
that they're somehow losing out and are going to be left behind, that they will they will do almost anything, including commit crimes uh, in order to try to sustain their 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 class position, their racial position and so on. But maybe well, maybe now I'm pushing it a little bit too far. <laughs> no, don't even get me started about the time the parent was trying to get the child to cheat in the third grade geography bowl. Oh my um, God. <laughs> I yeah. I I don't understand where this came from, but I do think it's the same or a related wellspring of anxiety about what it means to be modern and successful in America. Well, my kid is doomed. My kid uh, bombed out in the final round of the third grade geography, or it may actually even have been fifth or sixth grade, when she uh, erroneously believed that Cleveland, Ohio was a foreign country and or part of Ireland. <laughs> well done. Well, hey, if you're going to bomb, go big. Uh, I had a lot of trouble persuading her that it was not part of Ireland, including a lot of time spent with a map. Uh, in which in which her inability to find Cleveland, Ireland did not dissuade her from this theory. Um, okay, well, let, let's move on um, to uh, a few things going on around the world. And there is a lot going on. And as usual, almost all of it is bad. Um, what is going on with North Korea, Ed? We everything was beautiful. There was a love affair. Uh, everything was happy. We were going to have a deal. We had a summit. It was great. Even though then the deal didn't really happen, everything was still beautiful and it was still a love affair. And then all of a sudden North Korea, uh, is suddenly, you know, threatening to ghost the Trump administration in this relationship and saying, you know, we, we, we may want to end talks. We may want to resume nuclear tests. Uh, what, what's, what's happening? Um, well, I think, uh, uh, you know, the original summit, I mean, if you think back, if you think back to the origins of this, you know, there was the first year of the Trump administration, it was rocket man for a suicide mission. And, you know, um, fire and fury is just at the a fingertip away from, um, from um, my Oval office desk. Um, and, um, and then, you know, um, and all during that period, Kim Jong-un, you know, called him the dotard, et cetera. This exchange of insults period in which uh, North Korea was ratcheting up both its nuclear um, yield and also its missile range with a series of tests um, to the point where shortly before, in early 2018, shortly before the, well, late 2017, shortly before the Winter Olympics, um, in, in South Korea, just across the border, um, uh, just across the demilitarized border. Um, he then announces a, an end to tests, um, moratorium, um, and, you know, um, a, a great new era of friendship um, with, with South Korea. And Trump then in turn senses this opportunity to demonstrate what a deal maker he is. It culminates in that summit in Singapore, in which... Kim Jong-un had agreed to virtually nothing except some good mood music language on de de eventual denuclearization, um, step by step with um, America's dismantling of sanctions and uh, North Korea's integration into the global economy. And Trump then promptly declares that he's got the deal, he's solved the problem. Uh, there is no longer a nuclear threat from North Korea, which is an extraordinary self-defeat um, in terms of telling North Korea it's done all it needed to do. All Kim needed to do was meet Trump and say a few words that sounded roughly tweetable 
Um, and ever since then, the Trump administration has been desperate to try and retrospectively enforce what Trump claimed had already happened. Um, to the point where you get to the second summit and Bolton and others, as David Sanger was telling us on a previous show, um, David was there in Hanoi for this second summit. Bolton, Pompeo and others desperate to prevent Trump giving more away, such as announcing, you know, a, a sanctions reduction, um, uh, you know, rewarding bad behavior, in other words, was the great fear of the White House. And they essentially um, ensured that they boxed Trump in enough, ensured that he didn't do that. And so this, the North Koreans now are, uh, are threatening to resume testing. Um, and I think uh, are making it very clear in their public statements um, that they differentiate Trump the man from the people who work for him. For him. They're getting pretty annoyed with the John Boltons um, um, because <laughs> they just them, like really? to talk to Trump on his own. I can blame them for that either. Trump and Kim, it all would be well. <laughs> Heather? Yeah, the interesting thing since the breakdown of the summit um, has been that first the administration actually let its North Korea envoy, uh, a guy named Steve Began, who was a pretty well-respected um, Hill foreign policy staffer who then went off to be a lobbyist for the Ford company. Um, and I'm, I'm sure there's a joke in there somewhere about going from Ford to North Korea, but I still just haven't quite figured out what it is. Maybe the listeners can kind of come up with some good ones. Anyway, Began has has um, has undergone kind of endless humiliations in this job. The North Koreans frequently refuse to meet with him, take every opportunity to point out, as Ed said, that they know they don't have to talk to him if they could talk to Trump instead. Um, but Began had seemed to be um, trying to both say things in public that would sound like Bolton's line while also trying to develop the kind of step-by-step -step process that people who thought about if you, if you were going to make slow, phased progress with North Korea, what would it look like? Um, but the, the week after, they, after the second summit, um, Began was sent out to do a public appearance in which he explicitly said that there was going to be no phased disarmament and no step-by-step -step process and nothing could be agreed until everything was agreed, which seemed to really close the door on the whole style of negotiating um, that had been used, although, as Ed said, not like it had really resulted in anything, up to this point. Um, and then the North Koreans struck back at the end of last week by, by sort of first um, making it really obvious to anyone with a satellite that they were messing around at a, at a missile launch site that they had said they destroyed. Then coming out on Friday and saying, um, we are thinking about testing again because you guys are not doing, you're not serious. Uh, then we had Bolton over the weekend warn the North Koreans not to take any steps toward testing. Uh, the South Koreans, our South Korean allies, um, I'm not going to say in quotes because they are still our allies, um, have been frantically trying to, to repair the breach and start some kind of process as well as rescue their own process, which the current South Korean government was really now dependent upon. But it looks to me like um, the administration has left itself very little wiggle room while, and Ed, I wonder what you think of this, I think the strategy here is sort of as long as you think maybe you can pull Trump back in, then you have no incentive to return to the full-on fire and fury. You have 
You have no incentive to disabuse Trump of the idea that you might come back someday. It's an, it's an interesting kind of post-breakup strategy, if you will, while at the same time, you know, trying to push, up, push on Bolton and bet, as frankly, I think more than a few people are betting here in Washington that Trump can be made to, to eventually tire of Bolton. I think that's actually a, a pretty safe bet, given the uh, short uh, duration of uh, uh, the tenure of other senior officials under Trump. But but we, we're going to do a short podcast this time around, um, and we only have about 10 more minutes uh, before Ed turns into a pumpkin. So let me do a kind of quick round on several other issues. Uh, uh, maybe the first one, uh, big scoop from the New York Times, uh, says that the Saudis have been operating a, a, a rapid, so-called rapid action team that has detained, interrogated, tortured, and sometimes murdered many more dissidents than, than just Khashoggi, uh, in the last year or so, um, Ed, what's your reaction to that? And do you think that this is going to this clearly with the uh, I should have added with the knowledge and indeed under the direction of MBS? Uh, uh, so not just some kind of rogue team, but one that is, that is clearly being run uh, right from the top. Uh, do you think that this is going to finally have any impact on the U.S. relationship with the Saudis, or is this going to be yet another thing where, where there's some hand-wringing but nothing really changes? I fear it's going to be the latter, and I think what this very well-reported New York Times story um, has done is confirm what we all think. It sort of pieces together, you know, what lots of stuff that we already knew with stuff that we didn't, that confirms what um, we suspected. Um, was what we didn't know, namely that Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, you know, has this um, um, uh, has this intolerance, an extreme intolerance, even by, you know, the the, the Saudi Kingdom's um, anti dissent standards of any criticism um, uh, of of his um, of his rule, um, and is prepared to go to more extreme lengths than, than um, warranted by any precedent. Um, to, to stamp it out, and therefore that the Khashoggi killing, you know, was not some completely freak accident. It was just the sort of thick end of a, of a very long wedge. Um, uh, you know, we were we we have been aware of the fact that he's got a very glass jaw, not just within Saudi dissidents, with women um, protesters, women driver protesters, with um, those demanding more freedom um, of um, cultural. Um, um, leeway in Saudi Arabia and those who are political dissidents at home and abroad, but um, but he's also you know been extremely intolerant of members of his own family. You know he locked them up in the Ritz Carlton, famously tortured some of them. You know got them to sign over large sort of shares of their wealth. Um, we've known this about Mohammed bin Salman all along, um, and Congress you know, has been has been fairly clear in expressing since the Khashoggi action and in some cases since the Canada incident, which took place a few months earlier last year, you know, where he expelled the Canadian ambassador, Mohammed bin Salman, and recalled all Saudi students in Canada because of a fairly routine, fairly innocuous criticism 
by the Canadian government of detention of, um, of a blogger in Saudi Arabia. So we've known that this is a very thin-skinned, extremely authoritarian and impulsive crown prince. Um, and uh, the Trump administration has been impervious to all of this. Jared Kushner, you know, who is his point man and who, with whom he communicates on WhatsApp, they are both at the older end of the millennial mm. gener- generation and um, uh, has be- placed all his eggs in the Mohammed bin Salman basket for the two, two states. I'm, I'm trying to imagine he- their, their text exchanges. Yeah, it's um, um, comparing comparing um, uh, comparing the older generation that they're um, nominally um, nominally um, reporting to. I, I'm guessing is part of it. I mean, Trump Trump is very much outsourced Saudi policy to his son-in-law, and um, his son-in-law uh, is betting on Mohammed bin Salman's support for this Arab Israeli peace plan he's been cooking up for since forever. Um, because he needs the custodian of the holy places to support it, um, and because he needs Saudi money, because the whole plan is based on um, Saudi tens of billions of dollars of Saudi money being given to the Palestinians and to the Jordanians and others to sweeten the pot for them. Um, so I don't. I think I, I. I think it would take something considerably more dramatic than the, than the very good and very disturbing New York Times reports. Um, for um, for the Trump administration to change its stance on Saudi Arabia. Heather, let me uh, do a topic change for you. Um, the latest news uh, out of the White House and the Pentagon uh, suggests that in stark contrast to what President Trump said he was planning to do just a few months ago, uh, the U.S. is not going to, not only is it not going to be withdrawing all troops from Syria, as, as Trump said rapidly, uh, it's not even necessarily going to be withdrawing them all slowly, uh, but in fact is now intent- planning to leave uh, about a thousand troops uh, indefinitely in Syria, uh, apparently to aid the Kurdish fighters uh, against the Turks and Turkish-supported fighters. Uh, what do you make of this? Is this going? I, I, and I, do you see this as uh, bowing to the inevitable on the part of the Trump administration to to read a meet a genuine need to maintain some troop levels in Syria, or do you see this as just uh, more continuation of of insane policies uh, when in fact we should get out? It is utterly wildly incoherent. And I am at the point that I think either a coherent policy of getting out or a coherent policy of staying in for specific targeted policy objectives that we could have a debate about would be preferable. I actually think this is worse than either option. Um, (laughs) I wondered if this wasn't coming a week or two ago when I saw the Kurds very showily declare that they had done some negotiating with Russian forces about having Russian forces come into their communities the minute the U.S. pulled out. And I thought, ooh, Mm. that was designed to tweak somebody in the Pentagon um, or somebody at the White House, and um, which is to say Bolton again. And um, it looks like it worked. Um, But it's just everything about it. One can also imagine a scenario in which Turkey concluded that it would be better to have the U.S. stay as a buffer 
than for the U.S. to go and Turkey to do the thing that it says it will do if the U.S. goes, which is to invade and deal with the problem of the Kurds, quote unquote, itself. But if that were what you were going to do, you wouldn't have framed this announcement the way you just quoted it being framed. So it's just wildly incompetent. It looks to me like um, pieces of the U.S. government being played by the many uh, international and domestic actors who have things they want in this region. And it's kind of um, a Syria policy that across administrations has never really been able to be very coherent about what it wants and what costs it was willing to bear to get what it wants. Mm -hmm. Um, And has just constantly said it could do more than it could with less resources. and, And that we've just kind of reached a new a new depth of absurdity, which is going to cost American lives, um, plus lots and lots of other lives, including civilians, without necessarily advancing any long-term strategic goals. And sorry, I just feel like I should finish this commentary by yelling (laughs) Iran three or four times, because Uh (laughs) when you encounter strategic incoherent, oh, no, 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 you're just like the 14-year-old trying to bait me into yelling (laughs) in public. Uh, And I will not be baited. But Anytime you encounter strategic incoherence in the Middle East, and this actually goes back to to the Saudi point, I I associate myself with everything I had said, you just yell Iran enough times and that's supposed to make incoherent uh, or inconsistent or flat out hypocritical things (laughs) the right thing to do. Uh, We're just about out of time. Uh, Ed, before you leave, is there anything that you are following this week and worrying about that I haven't asked you about that our listeners should be worrying about and following? Um. That's a very good question. Uh, I, you know, I do at the all times have the looming um, uh, Xi Jinping Trump Mar-a-Lago meeting um, on my mind. Although the date hasn't actually been nailed down, but the U.S.-China trade deal is whether it happens or not, and what it looks like when it does is going to be a huge story that'll set the mm-hmm. that will shape the presidential debate. Heather, how about you? God, I had given myself permission not to worry about that because it doesn't have a date. Um, But Ed's right. The thing that I am watching this week um, for, this is the wrong word to use, but entertainment value, um, is that last week, among many other things, the administration announced that it was going to reinstate a ban on... um, transgender service, open transgender service in the military, but they did it in a way that got crossways of a court. You would think that all they would have had to do was wait for the court to do what it needed to do, but they didn't wait. So we may actually have another round of court fights on that issue popping up again, sort of out of um, what appears to have been incompetence as opposed to any any ideological Mm -hmm. intention. Well, and the last issue I'll nominate for everyone to keep an eye on is next week's visit of uh, uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to the United States for the APAC annual conference. Uh, uh, He's scheduled not only to address the APAC conference, but also to address Congress and potentially meet with President Trump. Um, so I'm sure that some new new horror will emerge out of this. But we are out of time for today. Uh, thank you, Ed. Thank you, Corey and David. We hope you will come back soon. Uh, listeners, we're glad to have you with us, and we look forward to being back with you again next week on Deep State Radio. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. 
Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.